Right. I think I'm going to be talking, you know, for John maybe, but I think anything that can clarify the reason for a referral is good for a receiving physician when they get a referral. So mentioning that this person is four out of five pest positive or has joint symptoms is very helpful. I think the other helpful thing is to mention at least in one word or two how acute or severe the disease is in terms of impact for the patient at the time. So someone who can hardly get into your office and can't work needs to be prioritized over someone who has a swollen toe because he hit the soccer ball. So I think those two things in a referral are very helpful for the rheumatologist. We're very lucky in BC in that we've got a good cohort of rheumatologists who can assess these people and help with their management quite quickly. So really, the next course of action depends a little bit on your community, your physician microcosm in the area where you are in your practice. If you're the sole dermatologist for a million people and there's one rheumatologist as well in that same population, then initiating a treatment that you think would help both spheres, joints and skin, while they wait also makes some sense. Yeah, I agree. I think it depends largely on the environment with which you practice. Hi, my name is Jonathan Chan. Hi, my name is Jan Dutz, and you're listening to the Skin and Joints Podcast. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Dr. Dutz and Dr. Chan. ACA, the PSA project only on the Skin and Joints Podcast. Take it away, folks. So shifting to aka the PSA project, or PSD project as I like to call it, we had Dr. Dutz initially introduce it over a year ago. I remember it was a nice, hot August day. We were recording in a studio. I found this project very novel. It looked at deploying real-world validated tools and comparing practically to what dermatologists found most useful. So this project looked at a spectrum of validated tools. Dr. Dutz, could you give an overview of a summary of what the results from the PSA project essentially demonstrated from a real-world lens? Okay, so this study essentially compared three different tools some of which we've talked about already. Another tool called Pure4 and one called SIPAT. And we compared the use of these tools in the offices of over 50 dermatologists across the country over a defined period of time, essentially during that summer. And one of the things that we asked those dermatologists is, before doing this study, would you screen for psoriatic arthritis? And if you don't, why is that? And so one of the findings was that people initially, before actually going through the exercise, felt that this would be too time-consuming. They just hadn't formed the habit. They weren't reminded by their teachers or by their community to do this, and also felt that maybe the yield would be low in their population. Once they actually went through the exercise, they found that it was actually not that big of a problem in terms of time. So most people were able to apply these tools within two minutes in their practice. Just that experience, increased use of these tools in their practice. Going forward now, it'd be nice to go back a year later or two years later and ask them, are you guys still doing this? Short-term, you know, behavioral change or a long-term behavioral change. That we don't know yet, but certainly we were able to educate them to let them know that it doesn't really take very much time and that it can be useful. You make a really good point about behavior change and interesting to follow these folks a little bit later on in the project, but I guess as a pharmacist, from my perspective, the question may be selfish, but do you see primary care providers potentially, if let's say the dermatologist finds it as disrupting the workflow or too much time to deploy these tools, is there a role for primary care to deploy some of these validated tools and loop the dermatologist's office in if there's something suspected? Well, I guess there's a number of steps in primary care practice. First, from our point of view, we would need to know that it's a confirmed diagnosis of psoriasis. And if someone has a confirmed diagnosis of psoriasis, they have a higher incidence of having joint disease, right? One in four eventually will get joint disease. I'd like to see the family doctors aware of that link, number one. 
and aware that they can, of what they can do to decrease that. One actionable item that may not be so simple, however, is weight loss. So it's been shown that losing weight not only improves your skin, but very likely decreases the chance of you developing joint disease down the road. So those actionables that we can't take on as dermatologists and even as rheumatologists, you know, the day may come when we have a pill that we can give everybody in a cost-effective manner to have everybody lose weight. But that day, it's not here yet. So we need to bring in the help of our family practitioners to educate people on the importance of weight loss in this clinical scenario. I would say that a lot of pharma companies have tried to uh, create uh, different programs uh, as added bonus for patients enrolling with their medication. I know some have tried to allow for lifestyle coaching. So whether it's dietitians or exercise or physio, help with depression, anxiety. I have to say that I n never forget which company has that program. They gave me a free sample and I, I haven't used it yet. But I think that's something that we also need to focus on in our patients with psoriatic arthritis because there is a higher prevalence of things like depression, anxiety, and, and metabolic syndrome. And those things we can't just treat with medications. We need to use non-pharmacologic therapy as well. So it, let's say, for example, it was a confirmed diagnosis of severe psoriasis and the patient's coming to get their biologic once every three months or once a month at the pharmacy. If, if I did the pest, let's say, and there's a high suspicion, do you see a role from that angle, from that patient journey, they might have an open file with you, for example, and uh, to maybe communicate with you. Yeah, so I mean, that would be a helpful add-on. What you could do is if you do that screening in your pharmacy practice, you could give that sheet to the patient and say, bring this to your doctor at their next visit. And that the highest impact would be to bring it to your dermatologist or to your rheumatologist if they have one. But you know, presumably they don't, otherwise they'd be in the system already. As a dermatologist, once we've identified someone who uh, has a potential risk of psoriatic arthritis through these screening tools, what do you think should be our preferred course of action? Some of the respondents mentioned in the study that they even started treatment right there for psoriatic arthritis and referral to a dermatologist. So should more and more derm do that or should they wait to refer to a room? Should the rheumatologist see them in an expedited manner? Right. I think I'm going to be talking, you know, for John maybe, but I think anything that can clarify the reason for a referral is good for a receiving physician when they get a referral. So mentioning that this person is four out of five pest positive or has joint symptoms is very helpful. I think the other helpful thing is to mention at least in one word or two how acute or severe the disease is in terms of impact for the patient at the time. So someone who can hardly get into your office and can't work, needs to be prioritized over someone that, who has a swollen toe because he hit the soccer ball. So I think those two things in a referral are very helpful for the rheumatologist. We're very lucky in BC in that we've got a good cohort of rheumatologists who can assess these people and help with their management quite quickly. So really the next course of action depends a little bit on your community, your physician microcosm in the area where you are in your practice. If you're the sole dermatologist for a million people and there's one rheumatologist as well in that same population, then initiating a treatment that you think would help both spheres, joints and skin, while they wait also makes some sense. Yeah, I agree. I think it depends largely on the environment with which you practice. In a perfect world, as soon as patients have symptoms, they get seen by a rheumatologist and you can confirm things right away. Oftentimes there is a delay between when the patients get referred and the patients are suffering, so the GPs start them on prednisone. Now, the problem is that'll mask all the swelling, so by the time I see them, 
I don't see anything and they look great and it's hard to tell whether or not uh, they really had disease and you don't want to commit them to long-term DMARD therapy or biologic therapy until you know for sure they have it. So you often have to stop the medication, induce a flare, and then get them back in. So you prolong the suffering there. In the same way, you know, if the dermatologist sees a patient, they're suspicious. I think it's helpful for them to tell the rheumatologist, yeah, there's definite psoriasis and what their thought process is in terms of how they want to treat the skin. Now, if the joints are quite active, great. I can use something that's going to treat both joints and skin. And, you know, some of the biologics are going to be really effective for that. So I think just having a sense of what the other party is thinking can be helpful. Or if you have a combined clinic, that's even more helpful because you can chat about it in front of the patient. You basically hinted at the treatment strategy globally. The question, I think, to start with for John, we talked about psoriatic arthritis and how heterogeneous it is, how complex it is in terms of, let's say, confirmed psoriatic arthritis, looking at ACR scores, looking at PASI responses. It seems like a bit of an art in terms of how you frame your treatment strategy, but what are the principles you use for assessing efficacy as part of your treatment strategy for PSA when you look at the trials and disease domains that are presented or involved? How do you kind of approach that? So our goal in clinic is often to achieve minimal disease activity, although it's going to be individualized to the patient. Let's say you've got a 90-year-old patient with metastatic cancer who is wheelchair-bound, you might not be super aggressive there, especially if they're on a bunch of other chemotherapy agents. And for the most part, you're just trying to keep them comfortable. But let's say you've got a 20-year-old who is a competitive athlete who needs all their joints, and they've got a lot of decades left to live. You want to be much more aggressive because you don't want to tolerate any risk of damage. And so it, you do have to individualize your, your target based on the patient there. Probably the most common one we're using right now is the minimal disease activity, which has kind of a number of variables. There's seven of them. Some of them include tender or swollen joints, enthesitis, hack, pain scores. But you also do have to factor in what do you think, for example, pain is attributable to the to active inflammation. Because a lot of times, and that can be difficult because patients can have pain from you know, osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, twisted ankles, for example, and it's not always from psoriatic arthritis. So how we determine what's active can be difficult. I think, as I mentioned earlier, we've got imaging modalities that can be helpful, but that's also just one piece of information. I mean, sometimes we'll do an ultrasound, it's normal, and a month later we see a visibly swollen joint. And so you do have to follow patients over time to really get a sense what is happening and uh, what may settle on its own. So basically, when you look at skin involvement versus joint involvement, do you say, okay, if there's more skin involvement, for example, uh, that changes my treatment decision or your treatment strategy versus if there's more joint involvement, does it change the pathway of your decision making? So some of them are better for the skin and you probably want to pick an agent that may be more effective for the skin and vice versa for the joints as well. There might be some that are great for the skin, but maybe not quite as good for the joints. And you might want to pick something that's going to be a bit more effective that way. Okay, so we won't name names of uh, any of the therapies to be fair and balanced, of course. We learned that nail and scalp involvement is a big risk factor for psoriatic arthritis and probably very hard to treat. If you do have a patient who has those, does that change your treatment strategy? A good question. I think from a dermatologist's point of view, the studies uh, that were done that identified morphologies or cutaneous findings as risk factors for psoriatic arthritis came out of the Mayo Clinic now about 20 years ago, and they were the result of a retrospective analysis. 
So that analysis has been pretty well accepted, although it's never really been prospectively studied for its utility. So if you'd ask about the utility of these specific things in a dermatologist's practice, I would imagine most people would say it's pretty low because in fact, you know, most people have at least some scalp disease. And nail disease, about half of them have that. And so those findings are so common that using them as a strong discriminator for getting joint disease becomes less useful from the dermatologist's point of view. And from our point of view, any agent actually that treats psoriasis vulgaris highly effectively will also treat the scalp and will also treat the nail. So if I think of the good performing TNF inhibitors, the IL-17 inhibitors, the IL-23 inhibitors, all of those do an excellent job with regards to the scalp and nail. It just takes time for the nails, right? So if you'd ask me, you know, the presence of any of these features alter my choice of agents in an ideal world where I can get the best agents, I would say probably not. Because we, however, find it very difficult to get biologics for scalp-only disease or for nail-only disease based on public reimbursement. Now, there's a host of papers that attest to the fact that severe scalp disease is severe disease and highly impactful on the quality of life of a person. And I'd say the same for the nail. You know, both of those cause stigmatization and have effects on ability to function. So you have itch with the scalp, you have discomfort in the nails, interactions with people, all that thing. It's important to get them covered, it's just very difficult to do. If they get joint disease, however, it becomes a little easier. So I think some of us refer these patients to the rheumatologist for a good look over just to make sure they don't have joint disease. A pretty approach, very practical, right? And it's in the best interest of patients at the end of the day. Yeah, you just have to squeeze the heel really hard. (laughs) That's a pro tip right there on the podcast. All right, so this cues the Ask the Expert segment on the Skin and Joints podcast, my favorite part of the podcast where we take your burning questions. And so we have our first question from Kelly in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan who asks, for patients with axial manifestations of psoriatic arthritis, what do you recommend in clinic as a treatment strategy and what kind of evidence do we have for specifically more of that domain being involved or expressed and any recent data that you've seen around this? So there is, as you mentioned, the maximized trial, which is the first RCT specifically looking at axial psoriatic arthritis. So they looked at sikikinumab 150, 300, and placebo in patients who fulfilled CASPAR criteria who also had back pain. And I think an important issue is that it was the clinician diagnosing the axial disease because we don't really have criteria for what constitutes axial PSA. So we don't know if these patients had, you know, classic AS with a bit of psoriasis or if there's a distinct entity. I think there is a lot of thought that there may be, there probably is a difference. There's differences in B27 prevalence, some of the demographics, some of the way they describe their back pain. And in the trial, 60% of patients had evidence of bone marrow edema on the MRI of the spine or SI joints. So we don't have a lot of information on the other 40%. And when they do the trial, when they reported the trial, they didn't break down treatment response between those with a positive or negative MRI, uh, those with erosions versus bone marrow edema. So there's still a lot of unknown questions. Having said that, Uh, it still met its primary endpoint. So you could argue that despite a very broad inclusion criteria, it still worked. So that's been helpful. And, you know, we recently published the updated GRAPA guidelines, and I was involved with reporting the axial PSA section. And for the most part, we just extrapolated data from AXPA. But we did acknowledge that there may be a difference with axial psoriatic arthritis. 
And we do have data from the Discover trial. So that's guselcumab in psoriatic arthritis. And there was a subset of patients who had x-rays that were red and definitely had sacroiliitis. And so when you just look at those patients, their back pain scores did improve. So they did what's called a modified BASDI. So there's six questions on the BASDI, 0 to 10, you know, how's your pain, how's your stiffness. And they took out the question on peripheral joint pain, and they still did better. So that's what's called a modified BASDI. And there was a phase three study looking at ustekinumab in axial psoriatic arthritis or axial spondyloarthritis, and it did not meet its primary endpoint. But in the trials looking at psoriatic arthritis, there were some patients who did have back pain, no imaging to confirm, but there was some signal that their back pain also improved. So again, it's kind of hypothesis generating. We don't know for sure if this works in axial PSA. They're currently doing a randomized controlled trial with patients with definite axial PSA called the STAR trial. So that's looking at guselcumab. And their primary endpoint is to see whether or not the back does improve. I will say, you know, a lot of clinicians hesitate towards using a 23 inhibitor because they say, oh, there's, we don't know if it works for the axial disease, which, which is true, we don't know. But I would also say there's not that many patients with active psoriatic arthritis who have active axial disease as well. I mean, we're having a really hard time recruiting patients for this trial. And so, you know, maybe it's a small subset of patients where it becomes a clinical issue, but for a majority of patients, I think it's pretty evident whether or not they have axial or peripheral disease. So that's a great summary of the data. Uh, It's impressive in terms of how you're able to know the ins and outs and not really refer to anything. So interesting because this question also addresses understanding what therapies have been studied, like you say, and what mechanisms of actions have shown some demonstrable benefit for specifically the axial domain. So overall, from a clinical perspective, what do you think of the data from the PSA project and how will this change your practice and for the practice of dermatologists as well, including our listeners. So you're referring to our screening tool project. Well, I think it clearly showed that you can change, at least over the short term, the behavior of dermatologists in terms of adapting and adopting a short questionnaire and highlighting the importance of psoriatic arthritis, potentially. From just John's perspective, what do you think about having dermatologists more involved in screening as part of the PSA conversation? So the lucky thing about psoriatic arthritis is that you have this warning signal. So you, the, on average, these patients have psoriasis before the joints and for many years before the joints. So we don't have blood work like a rheumatoid factor or, or an anti-CCP that can draw attention to these patients. But because we already have a high-risk population and the dermatologists are seeing these patients, I think it's very helpful to capture them. And I think it's also important to be routinely asking them, do you have peripheral joint pain? Do you have axial symptoms? And there are a number of validated tools like PEST, like the SIPAT or the Topaz. Those are all useful questionnaires for screening these patients. The Toronto has one as well that uh, can help identify which are the high-risk patients and funneling them towards uh, the rheumatologist to get uh, early identification so that we can get their disease under control. Excellent. Okay, well, I mean, it sounds like a very novel project, and uh, it'll be interesting to follow through the next year, perhaps, to see what the next steps are for real-world implementation, what it looks like. And as you guys say, you know, the behavior change is something that takes time. So uh, this will be continued. And of course, we had some thoughts and conversations around maybe involving primary care, which would involve closing that patient journey and closing gaps in care, which can be very complex, as we know, for these patients. We were going to ask, who's the better rheumatologist? but we won't. Depends for what? <laughs> uh, 
we'll set out a score at the next episode, but we really do appreciate both of your times here on the Skin and Joints podcast. And thank you again. We really think you represent the Skin and Joints podcast to the T. Uh, you know, there's probably not a better combo to do it. So thank you again. And we'll connect with you guys for a third part, hopefully sometime soon. You guys forgot to mention, just like every other episode, a reminder, we kind of have to say this. The opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and for licensed healthcare providers and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thank you to Novartis for supporting today's episode. Let's chat soon. (laughs) 